Hey, this is Jeff and Jeremy from the Ultra Running Guys. We just want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We started this podcast to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. We also want to make sure that you are aware that there are a few ways you can connect with us. So be sure to check us out on our Instagram and Facebook accounts, and you can head over to our website, theultrarunningguys.com, so you can see the live races that we're hosting. Lastly, don't miss out on an opportunity to connect with us on Patreon, where we'll be providing behind-the-scenes content, and this year we'll be spending a lot of time really building up that community. So thank you again. Be sure to like, subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends, and enjoy the episode. thinking this is dumb this is a waste of time when are we going to do the back pain exercises and at the end of the appointment he's like okay that's it stand on up and i stood up and it was the first time i stood up and could breathe and there wasn't this sharp searing stabbing pain in my lower back and i just broke down i was crying And welcome back to the Ultra Running Guys. You got Jeremy Reynolds and Jeff Winchester of the Ultra Running Guys. And the reason that we're here is to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. And so if you're listening, thank you so much for taking the time, for being part of the ERG community. Um, if you could go leave us a review, if you are getting value out of this, give us a rating and uh, we would be absolutely grateful. So here's the deal. I am actually, I'm super excited about this because I think this could be very applicable. To I think it's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. All right. So our guest tonight is quite literally an expert in pain. So after breaking his back, not once, but twice, he lived for years with chronic pain until a chance meeting helped him unlock the secret to his relief. So after that, he dove headfirst into learning to become the master of his own body, which is freaking awesome. And he has since set out on a mission to help others do the same. Uh, and I, what's really cool is he's now training for his first ultra. So we're excited to talk about that. And we're ecstatic to have the founder of Pain Academy here to help us better understand what we can do as ultra runners to better prevent and manage our own pain. So Vinny Crispino, man, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. That's a cool name, by the way. It is, Vinny Crispino. Um, keep moving. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So we obviously are very excited. There's so much to talk about here. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think in terms of ultra running, we had this conversation. We're like, hey, part of the reason we get into ultra running is because there is a lure of, hey, how do we put ourselves in a place where we're actually dealing with some type of pain, whether it be emotional or physical, and work through it. However... There's this other side of pain that we obviously do not want in the picture. So we're going to talk about that. We're really excited to talk to you about your training and your upcoming run. But before we do that, let's, let's hear a little bit of your story, man. I, like I said, you broke your back twice. Why don't you give us kind of the quick overview of how that happens? And not uh, once, but twice. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, then, and then what does the journey look like after that? Yeah, so that's obviously a great place to start. So, um, you know, my, my story really starts actually before I broke my back, I was a division one athlete. So I was a swimmer, eight time All-American. I was really good in the water, couldn't do anything on dry land, couldn't throw a baseball, make a basket, 
terrible, but I was pretty good in the water. And, you know, this led to a lot of early on success. I had a bunch of Colorado state records. The water was kind of my second home, uh, but I got really burnt out of competing at that level. And I think you can only swim back and forth in a pool so many times before you just lose your mind. And I got burned out and I really looked for kind of a comparable sport that I could get into that was less serious. And surfing was probably the least serious thing I could have chosen. And, you know, I was, I grew up in Denver and at the time I was seeing these surfers on TV in Southern California with like board shorts and long hair, and they were like tan. And this was none of what I was going through. So I wanted that life. I, I, I wanted to do that. And at about 18 years old, I sold everything I had basically quit swimming and I wanted to pursue a life of being a pro surfer. Mm-hmm but I sucked at surfing. I was really good if breaking my back didn't allude to that, but uh, I was really good at paddling out, but I was not a technical or skillful surfer. And I was strong enough to paddle out into waves that I had just no business being in the ocean uh, when these things were pounding. And um, this was really only a couple months after I moved out to California. Uh, I just took the wrong wave in the wrong area. This thing spit me up, threw me on my back, hit a rock, fractured my T12 vertebrae, the force of impact shifted my spine 21 degrees to the left and just multiple herniations and some serious soft tissue and nerve damage just in in the blink of an eye. And, you know, I, I tell the origins of being an athlete because it's this you know, story of, of, and I think everybody goes through it just feeling kind of invincible and uh, bulletproof. And then there's kind of your humbling first injury. And and this was mine. You know, I went from being this highly capable athletic person to like avoiding stairs and second guessing, you know, do, do I need to go to the bathroom now? Cause then I have to get up off the floor. It was such a radical shift in, in a way of living life. And that was the first time I broke my back and it fundamentally changed everything. You know, it wasn't like a lot of the repetitive stress or repetitive use injuries that I got from swimming, which were minimal. You know, if you hurt your arm, you could train your core and legs. If you hurt your legs, you could train your core and arms. Breaking your back, there was just, there was no working around it or working through it. It was just sitting and laying on the ground for months with nothing to do. Real quick, because I know there's more to the story. What was the emotional toll that came along with that? brutal. It was brutal. Nothing had prepared me for that. The physical pain was one thing. I think we all have a massive capacity for dealing with pain. What I wasn't prepared for is just the severe depression that came from that. You know, so I say that there was the back pain, Uh, obviously that was uh, severe and challenging and debilitating, but it was just this loss of being an athlete. It was like grieving this loss of youth and loss of capacity of doing whatever you wanted, never taking things for granted. And now you have to meticulously and carefully do everything. It was a radical change in feeling that took many years to figure that out. You know, if, if, and we can obviously get into this later, I'm sure, I'm sure we will. I remember seeing my broken back on the first x-ray in the doctor's office and It was at that moment that I thought this was a physical problem. If somebody would have told me that my emotions and my mindset had to do with 
healing and what it was going to take to make a full recovery, I would have just called BS on it. I thought it was just a purely physical issue. And I really disregarded the mental health aspect and the depression and the, the struggles that came with having a disability. It was quite challenging, really dark times. Obviously there was a strength though that you had to continue to press on because knowing what I know, we talked about a second time, right? And it's not because, uh, it's not because, you know, you were walking down the street and, and fell and re-injured it. You started a journey, you made some, it sounds like some pretty significant progress. So just kind of take us quickly, you know, through that, that next step, because you did regain some focus and you were moving forward. And then you had this second setback, which I could only imagine just had to be crushing. Yeah. And, you know, the recovery was quite standard to what I think all of us have been through, right? If we have an injury, we go see the appropriate sources, the doctors and the PTs, and, you know, maybe we explore other modalities like Cairo and PT massage, things like that. So, so I went through the loops and I was okay. You know, this was years after the actual back break, the vertebrae healed the herniations healed. I did my PT. I did all the work that, that I was supposed to do. I still could barely move and it was still debilitating. And there was this moment where I really kind of saw the limited availability of help out there. I was just kind of on this hamster wheel of just getting prescribed drugs. And that was about it. Just giving the same exercises over and over. Everybody I saw told me something different. And there was just something that clicked where I just realized that I'm probably the only person that's actually going to be able to fix this problem. I can't keep relying on these systems that just were giving me more drugs and medication. And I went on to become a certified personal trainer. And that's what led to injuring my back the second time. You know, the things you need to learn to be a trainer, they don't really factor in disability. They don't factor in movement problems. It's really just either performance or aesthetics. And I was well-trained in that stuff. And I tried to use that information to the best of my ability. And I was in the gym. I was trying to do basically what I'd been trained in doing. And it was all wrong. It wasn't improving my movement. It was, uh, I tried to do these bent over rows and deadlifts, trying to get more muscles and joints moving together without addressing the imbalances and the soft tissue dysfunction that had been piling up for years after breaking my back. And that's what led to the second injury. I picked up a weight that I had no ability to control that weight in a position I had very little control in. And my back buckled as I lifted it up. And my L4 vertebrae slid forward. My L3 slid backward. And there was just this lightning bolt jolt. And I tried to play it off cool, but immediately just started sweating and crying at the same time. Did not re-rack my weights. I left all that on the ground and I just hobbled to my car and it was just back on the floor for months and months and months. So what went through your mind at that point when you were back in your car? I'm done. I'm done. It, it was, you know, the fact that I was in the gym and kind of taking action and moving and feeling like your blood going and, and your body temperature raise. It's this moment of feeling like reconnected to life in your body. It's that euphoria that I hadn't felt in the longest time. And this was one of my first couple of times back in the gym, trying to strengthen the body and to just get not like a tweak, but a full blown throwing your back out that took months to heal. It was just, I'll never escape this. It felt like there was this prison that is now, uh, I'm confined to for the rest of my life. 
So how, how old were you at this time? This originally breaking my back 20. The second time was 23. So I'm going to go backwards a little bit in your story, just because there's, there's part of your story that intrigues me for selfish reasons. Uh, my son is a D1 swimmer at North Carolina State and has been swimming all his life. Wonderful. <laughs> he, he loves it, right? Um, and it's interesting. One of the things I've learned about swimmers and having one who's very competitive as well is that it is their identity and it is who they are uh, because it is all they've ever known. And if I heard you correctly, you left Colorado State when you were 18 mm. to go to California and everything. That's right. And so when you're 18 and you left Colorado State, you decided to try to pursue surfing and then you injured your back the first time. And then again, when you're 23, to me, you have this, this arc of constantly trying to look back of, of no longer being the athlete you were when you were at Colorado State. So the, the hard question I kind of want to kind of dig a little bit is, did you ever look back with regret on leaving Colorado State because of that? Regret never entered the picture because I did everything I wanted to do. If I'm mm -hmm. really being honest, I was burnt out at 15. Mm -hmm. Your son's in swimming. You know what these guys are doing. And when I was going through it, this was some 15 plus years ago where we didn't really have a lot of the education and coaching techniques. We did garbage yardage. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a day that we didn't do two days under 10,000 yards total, not per practice. Sometimes that was per practice, but it was just so much burnout and doing the same thing that I had to get out of it. And so there was really no looking back, even as I lay on my floor uh, in my California apartment split between multiple other roommates, because it's crazy expensive out here. You know, I got my mattress on the floor, my back's broken, staring straight up at the ceiling, still grateful I came out of there, you know, still grateful I'm still not in Colorado. I was over it. It was time to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. It is true. I mean, there, there's a... a it is a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and everything. It's just when you said that when you were, you know, you were 23 and right before you broke your back the second time that you were in the gym and you were finally beginning to feel reconnected to life because you were becoming athletic again. And, and, and swimming is all about being athletic, right? You, you, you were obviously an athlete to do it for so long and for so well. And so it's, it's gotta be mind, just a mind screw really for you to, to be so gifted as an athlete to then pursue other endeavors and to just continue to get kind of slammed back down to the ground and everything. And so um, to get back up, regardless of having to get through the pain and stuff like you're talking about, mentally to put yourself back out there after just this evolution of leaving swimming, going into these other career paths and stuff and dealing with what you dealt with as an athlete is very challenging for any individual that, that I would could say. Yeah. And, and there were a lot of gaps in, in my athletic career. I spent months, you know, at the Olympic training center training mm -hmm. there and not once did anybody say, let me show you how to move. Mm -hmm. It's just, let's go fast. It, it's all performance-based mm -hmm. when you get scholarships. It's not, let's care for the longevity of this athlete. It's let's win this NCAA championship. How mm -hmm. fast and hard can we push these kids? So not only was there, even at, at the, what I would call elite level, there, there was no education on movement. It was just strictly performance-based. That's it. That's what all the conversations were pertaining to. When I left the veil of that highly structured and well-funded Division I program, uh, University of Wyoming was the college I swam at. You know, it dawned on me, I had zero structure. I had zero discipline. 
it was the environment of being on a D1 team that helped me be successful. It was the environment of youth athletics and having teams and appointments and practices. When all that stuff goes away, you're kind of really left with this stunned, well, what's next? What do I go do? And, and there is an adjustment period that I've spoken to with a lot of athletes about that. And that adjustment period was also through the peak of disability. So it was, um, it, it just felt like a really big fall from the top. Thank you for the correction. I don't know why I thought it was Colorado State, but yeah, University of Wyoming, so I appreciate the correction. I really love what you just said about the movement. And a lot of times, we're, you know, we are focused on the result, not on, hey, how do we move our body? And so we're going to get into that in a second. But one thing I really want to ground on is here's why I love your story, man. And especially not only that, but what you're doing with your life now, because obviously this is an ultra running show, but we know because we get tagged, we get messages. So there are people, I guarantee you listening right now that are dealing with injuries, right? And some people are going to get down. They're going to go, man, I'm always injured or mm -hmm. I got this, I got that. Well, dude, you broke your back twice, right? And you, you see, so you've been, when we talk about at the bottom and you're setting the example that with what you're teaching now, like that can be helped. And not only that, but the second piece of it from a, an emotional standpoint, like you're saying, like your journey has been the whole game. So nobody can look and go, you don't get it, Vinny. Like I've got this or I've got that, right? So I think one that's amazing, but it's a super interesting story, kind of how you got introduced. So you're living with pain. Like you said, you've kind of gone through a lot of the standard modalities. Tell us about this encounter, like this light bulb moment, because I've heard you talk about it. And uh, I want all the listeners to hear, you know, one day something changes for you. Yeah. So this was after, you know, being a young guy, couldn't hold down a job, racked up tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. Like I think a lot of people do just trying to feel better. I was at my wits end chasing symptoms, doing everything that the protocols for back pain were telling me to do and nothing was working. And it wasn't until a member came up to me. I was a trainer at a gym and he saw me just limping and hobbling around from session to session. And he says, Hey, I've, I've got a guy I want you to go see. He changed my life. And I'm thinking, God, here we go. Here's another thing. Right? So I take his card. Don't think anything of it. Just throw it into my car where a lot of other trash was, wasn't the <laughs> cleanest guy then, but, uh, and, and I forgot about it. And Fast forward a couple months, out of sight, out of mind. Didn't once think about this, this guy on this business card, uh, but he had an unusual name, so I remembered it. And I was in the grocery store trying to grab a, a carton of milk off of the shelf, struggling because that is heavy when your back doesn't really work that well. And this guy approaches me and he's like, hey, I don't mean to be rude or too forward, but I want to help you. And I'm like, yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm fine, pal. You have no idea what I've been through. It's like kind of that defensive, like you don't know me back off kind of a thing. And he's like, no, seriously, I'd love to help you with your knee. And I'm like, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> My back that's broken. But he did it in a, in, in a way that it was fierce. He didn't break eye contact. And he, I kind of got the vibe that this guy meant business. And he said, I don't want your money. Just come in your appointments on me. I just want to help. So I did. A couple of days later, I go in to see him and it was bizarre. Here I was some six years after originally breaking my back the first time, doing so many intense things, so many 
labor, uh, just intensive therapeutic extreme modalities, right? When you're in extreme pain, you think the solution is equivalent to that extreme pain. So you go looking for extreme things. And that's what I was doing for years. And, and here this guy was saying, man, you don't use both legs the same. Why don't we put the left leg in the same position as the right leg? And you're going to lay down on the ground for about an hour. And we're just going to breathe. And over the course of the hour, he didn't touch me. He just told me to move this bone this way. Do this with my upper body. Shift, rotate my left knee in a little bit. Pull my right. Just these little, little adjustments and cues. And I'm thinking this is dumb. This is a waste of time. When are we going to do the back pain exercises? And at the end of the appointment, he's like, okay, that's it. Stand on up. And I stood up. And it was the first time I stood up and could breathe. And there wasn't this sharp, searing, stabbing pain in my lower back. And I just broke down. I was crying and I was mad. I was, I was crying because what the hell just happened? This guy didn't touch me and he showed me what to do. Like I could do this my own. I was broke. I don't need to pay this guy. Like I now can do this on my own. There's a way. And it was a feeling that I'd never felt before, even after all the most amazing adjustments and incredible massage practitioners and therapists, this feeling was different. And I was, I was equally mad that why was this six years in and nobody ever talked about morphology, functional morphology. Nobody ever looked at my body's movement pattern. They were just obsessed about what I was obsessed about, which is fixing my back pain. Nobody ever once took a photo of me and said, why can't you put any weight on your left leg? Can we get those muscles to work a little better? And then what happens to your lower back when your left leg starts working better? And the spine relaxed. I mean, it was just bizarre. It's the only way I can describe that appointment. And that sent me down a completely different path. And from that day, I made it my mission to make this information available and accessible to as many people as possible around the world. It's a fascinating story. And I'm going to call this man Miyagi-san, but that's a whole nother day. Yeah. It's interesting because I think there's a place for medical input and there's a place for this, this other type of care that you're talking about. And the reason I say that is because I, I do believe that when your back was broken initially, I'm not sure how much of that process would have helped until your body healed in and recovered mm -hmm. in the position that it healed in. As you were healing, if you had begun to do those exercises, I wonder if you would have had the long-term challenge of not being to be as mobile as you were. In other words, because you healed in this awkward position, right? Without the mm -hmm. range of motion, that's why you dealt with it for so long. Yeah. So that's a great point. There's a couple things that I want to bring up. So mm -hmm. first of all, if I would have had this appointment a few months after breaking my back, I don't think it would have been entirely as mm -hmm. big deal as what it was. It was going through all the therapeutic modalities, seeing what works and what doesn't work that then set up this for finally being, this is the way to move forward, mm -hmm. right? It, it was like complete. What you're talking about, I had two issues. I had the original issue, breaking my back and injuring my spine. Mm -hmm. That was the original issue. And then there was 
all of the ways that I had learned how to shuffle and shift and twist and move and all the, all these, these funky patterns that I had developed to alleviate or mitigate as much pain as possible. So those two things happened simultaneously. Just like if you sprain an ankle, you're going to immediately change your gait, your biomechanics and every joint in your body are going to change to help you alleviate pain, prevent the risk of further damage, and hopefully giving your body the ability to heal. So we have this compensatory ingenious mechanism that you don't need to be educated academically to understand everybody taps into the superpower of compensation. But what serves you in the height of a traumatic injury, that process of compensation in a modern world where we don't have enough motion on a regular basis, the compensation, that superpower becomes a supervillain for so many of us because we don't have the natural mechanism to just restore function naturally prior to the injury. We hold on to these compensatory patterns. And one of the biggest reasons why so many quote unquote uh, acute back protocols didn't work is because my left shoulder was two inches higher than my right. My ribs were offset two inches to the left. My pelvis was rotated. One side was anterior, one side was posterior. We could hammer out the back all we wanted. The body around the back was keeping my spine in this fixed, laterally shifted position. And, and that light bulb moment in, the, in that appointment was approaching both of those problems simultaneously. It was relaxing and mitigating the pain and releasing and unwinding the compensatory patterns. It was like hitting the reset button on the nervous system and getting the muscles to start supporting the body in a new way. So when I say that this thing was life-changing, it was complete. It was the first time that I'd ever experienced both of those issues being approached systemically, simultaneously. I'm fascinated. That story to me, there's a, I've had a few like light bulb moments about other things. And obviously I've never broken my back or anything, but the first thing I thought of when I heard you talk about it, and I don't know if you're familiar with Wim Hof or, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of breath work. That was it. When the first time I did Wim Hof breathing, it was one of those unlocks where, you know, I'd never been able to hold my breath for like more than like 45 seconds. And then I watch a video. He says, Hey, breathe like this. And then I hold my breath for two and a half minutes. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, my body is different. It's designed different than I thought it was. And all it took was somebody saying, Hey, try this. Mm -hmm. And I think especially as runners, and like you said, day to day, we've got the comforts of everything. We don't really have a lot of natural movement. And there may be a lot of us that are listening to go, well, I do move a lot. I run, you know, I am putting my body in motion, but as somebody who's currently working through, you know, some lower back kind of pain and knowing that my hips are probably tight. I think that it's one of those things that we as runners, and, and you're going to tell me here in a second, to me, it's one of those critical things that if we can get it right, if we can start to understand the things that you've been forced to learn from a running standpoint, it'll be like doing that first breathing video. And all of a sudden I can hold my breath for two and a half minutes, right? We can recover. We can run without injury. We can do these things. We can increase our posture or, you know, our form, you know, am I on track in terms of, of some of that thinking, Hey, this secret that you figured out not only is 
this is how you help a guy with a broken back, but this is for everyday people that are doing just about anything. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, when I really first started getting this information out there, I was very hesitant on sharing my story because when I did, people were saying, oh, you know, can this stuff help me? I haven't broken my back like you did. The beautiful thing is you don't need to break your back to be brought towards some form of self-care. You could just do it entirely preventative. I applaud those people because I did not do any of that. It took me having a disability to actually understand the importance of movement. I only appreciated it when I couldn't do it, but you just have to be a human being who wants to learn how to move and feel better. You've got to be a human being who wants to look at this as a long game of developing a movement practice. That's what I teach people to do. I teach people the skills and the habit of being able to listen to your body and give it the movements it needs so we can regulate function. And you brought up a really important thing. And, and I think a lot of people here, especially athletic people, let's, let's just categorically talk about runners. Well, I just ran 20 miles today. What do you mean I don't move enough? There are movements we do and there are movements we don't do. Okay, Every movement we do is our body changing shape. Running is a specific shape that we put our body through to accomplish something. You guys are assuming a very specific shape to sit down. We manipulate our shape to do things. The problem is, is we are not manipulating our shape in a well-rounded way on a daily basis. We get very repetitive. We get very set in our routines. The runners are hitting those same muscles in those same short little ranges of motion, which is great. You can have great performance longevity to that. But there's also the other side, which is full range of motion, full neuromuscular function. If we aren't tapping into that, then we are not able to regulate the health of our neuromuscular system. A really simple way for those listeners out there to, to put this into context, something that's easy to absorb. Squatting, so at depth, if you just squat, it requires the same level of muscular activity as standing does. Now, some people just heard that and said, hell no, it doesn't. I have to work really hard to squat down. I feel stiff and tight and restrictive. I can only hold that position for 30 seconds. What you're feeling is the inability to regulate neuromuscular function due to how your body has adapted to your workouts, to your lifestyle, to your routine. Yeah. Quick to clarify, when you say, because I want to make you're sure talking about the squat. I saw the video. video. Right. So you're not talking about squat, the exercise. You're talking about you go down to a full squat, essentially a rest position. Yep. The single rest. Squat. Yep. I want to make yeah. sure people are thinking like, hey, you're saying right. it's the same to stand, but right. So down into a full squat rest position. Okay. Got it. Butt to the ground. Literally, almost. butt resting on the back of your calves, mm -hmm. chilling. Yep. That position requires so many muscles to be able to understand how to shorten, tighten, let go, relax, lengthen, support. We are talking such a wide range of function getting into a position like that. But how often do people get into positions like that? It's rare. If I use Disneyland as an example, because my wife and kid are there, when I stand in line, 
I will rest in the bottom of a squat. And it's so peculiar that somebody would do that nowadays. Yet that is a position that literally maintains neuromuscular function that we just don't get into enough on a daily basis. So by the time we actually do, it just feels so out of reach and impossible. So going back to the, well, I'm a runner. I move a lot on a daily basis, maybe distance, maybe aerobically, but do we floss? Do we take that neuromuscular system through its full proper use on a daily basis? And the answer for most people is not really. And that's why we tend to develop so many of these nagging injuries that just don't go away because we're underutilizing our system and we can't maintain or regulate function. Not only underutilizing, right? But because of some of the com compensatory stuff that you're talking about, it'll actually, from my understanding, turn it off, right? The nerve, I mean, it'll stop firing your muscles will, even when you want to use them, it'll say, no, I'm going to use this instead because this is what I, what I've been doing. And so without being intentional, is that correct? Yeah. So there's the path of least resistance. We move the way we move and at the heart of it, our movement should be natural and subconscious. We should be able to move. It should be fluid without thought, without control. This like over cueing is it's, it's a human created thing where we're always trying to force this force external rotation, keep your back arch, pull your shoulders. It's so weird. Movement should be so natural, but for so many of us, compensation is so natural, which is why movement doesn't feel natural. Mm -hmm. One of the really important components of work that I do is not force function. It's to teach the nervous system how to move in safe, controlled ways. So when it comes time to move, you have more options of movement, not just your compensatory pattern you've been using to, to charge marathons for, for decades, right? It's offering people more options of movement. If you have a left hip that doesn't externally rotate, it's not just going to find a way to do that randomly your body is going to find so many ways other than that left hip externally rotating for you to accomplish that job. And this is one of the main reasons why I think we need to really adjust the mainstream thinking. People get injured running and they say, I got injured running. Right. It's not the activity. It's the body we bring into that activity. If the body we bring into that activity can't do the function, you're going to receive an injury from that function. Yoga. I love yoga. Yoga is great, but yoga isn't inherently designed to change compensatory patterns. It's not inherently designed to change dysfunction. If you've got compensation and imbalance before yoga class, you're going to use all of that in yoga to accomplish all of those poses and positions. And sometimes increasing that flexibility and range of motion can be great. Sometimes just improving some type of soft tissue function can yield great results, but are we really getting to those deeper layers of dysfunction compensation? We're kind of just masking on top of them. And that's why people kind of train themselves out of these larger range of motion sports or activities because they don't get to the heart of why we're moving and feeling the way we are. I'm going to, I'm going to dig specifically into runners here a lot because there, I've been doing a little bit of stalking of you over the past few weeks as we've been prepping for this. Cool. And I've seen some things you've talked about, and I think it's fantastic. And I'm going to kind of set you in, into this discussion, hopefully. 
Can you talk about why you believe that balance is so important between left, right side for runners? Yeah. So we'll start off by running is jumping from one leg to the left. It's jumping from your left leg to the right leg. If you do that differently, we're going to have some type of repetitive injury that will typically show up on one side more than the other. We're talking asymmetrical pain. We can talk about bilateral pain in a minute, but what a lot of runners experience is that one ankle, that one arch, that one bunion, the one hip, that right lower back, the left shoulder. We're talking about asymmetrical issues when the body loses its bifunctionality. If the left hip can't move, flex, extend, and rotate the same as the right hip, it's not if we are going to develop a gallop. It's how significant is that gallop going to be? How are we going to wear down the left shoe? And how is that going to be different than wearing down the right shoe? That might not seem significant over a mile, but we all know everybody listening to this podcast runs more than a mile a week. So when we have this discrepancy, this disparity between right or left side, remember going back to the conversation of compensation, I think all of us runners, we're pretty in tune with our body, but we're not feeling a gallop because of how we can then manipulate our upper body. We can shift our trunk over to the side. We can round that right shoulder forward, elevate that left shoulder, cock the head a little bit to the side. Our upper body can contort to these precarious positions to help us maintain balance through an asymmetrical leg function. And so now what we have is an entire body issue. And if we don't deal with that, no runner wants to just have a great couple races. If we want to be in this for the long game, if we want to be that runner that's crossing the finish line at 60, 70, 80, I think we've all seen them and it's, and it's, it's glorious to watch that. Then we have to look at these asymmetrical patterns, these imbalances from right to left first. If we can tame these, we're going to massively reduce the time we spend trying to recover from runs, right? Imagine if your left hip can't extend that well, you can't push off your left leg that well. So that means if you're not pushing off that left leg well, you're going to land harder, more impact forces with your right foot every time you step forward. So left leg can't really propel you forward, which means that right leg is going to thud. It's going to hit. Well, we're talking about impact, increase impact forces, um, higher ground reaction forces, higher levels of force and compression on all of the soft tissue structures, bones, tendons, cartilage, ligaments, uh, fascia, muscles, all of it. That's going to create micro damage and if we're having a hard time recovering from runs, if we notice we get really shin splinty more on one side than the other, we've got to take a look at how these left to right imbalances are really inhibiting our ability to not only perform, but run the miles that we're wanting to run. It's crucial. So, and I'm going to keep going if that's okay. I heard you say something very similar to this, what you just said. And it got me thinking about like my own running and my own injuries that I, that I have sustained either on one side of my body, often on my left foot versus my mm -hmm. right foot. You know, it just depends, but I often have a left foot problem. I'm more, and, and 
real quick, I'm so sorry to cut you off. Notice how your left shoulder is an inch lower than your right and how the majority of your weight is on your left hip right now. Right. And the reason I'm sitting like that is because I don't like sitting so close to him. So that's just a whole nother thing. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's a functional imbalance. It is, right. it is. Trust me. It's like this every video. I'm like, oh God, you know, so, so it's a lean away, but that's why, but you'll cut all that out. It, or maybe not. No. Point is, nope. is that where I was going to go is that the left, right um, balance or that you're talking about and everything is it got my attention. I started thinking about it because I, I am curious for myself, like, is this something that I tend to see, you know, with my own struggles when I run, right? And so I have a, I have a Garmin 245 and I have all these statistics and everything that run um, on, my, on my watch every time I do a, a run. And so one of the metrics that now the 245 and other, other Garmin's, and I think probably Chorus watches and some of the other like Sun 2 probably have as well, is a feature called ground contact time. I started looking at it and I realized that when I run faster runs, um, I tend to have a better balance between my right and left. And um, they say that most people are going to be slightly asymmetrical when they run and they're looking at no more than a gradient of 2% um, difference between your right and your left. Um, anything above 2% or when you reach 2%, there's a loss of economy or running efficiency of, of 7% hmm. is, the, is the impact. And so if you are out of balance between your left and your right, just from how often they strike the ground, then you're actually creating a running economy issue as well. And so the difference though, is that on my slower runs where I'm trying to take my time and I'm trying to plod along, I actually have a greater imbalance. Um, and I have gone up to 4% difference between the two and to where my left foot, which is the one that tends to be more injured, can be up to like almost 52 and a half percent of ground contact time balance compared to the other one, which is like 48%. And so it basically means that I'm spending a lot more time on my left foot because um, ground contact time is how long your foot stays on the ground before you lift it up for the next time. If it's imbalanced and the one foot that stays has the higher contact time simply means that that leg runs slower than the other leg. I'm saying all this because I know there are people who are listening who are recording their, their you know, runs as they're out there now and they're gonna get done and they've got the statistic. They can look at see what their balance looks like now and they can see, is Vinny out of his mind or not? Because I see this personally, the statistic actually aligns with where my own maladies tend to show up. Yeah, and, and there's, um, there are some routines that I can share with you that go be a scientist, try this routine, mm -hmm. and then go on a run. What happens to the ground contact time? Now, what we've got to do is we've got to be a scientist with this, right? We got to control the variables. So we got to figure out what is, uh, we have, a, have to have a benchmark. Maybe it's go run 10 miles at X pace, so then we have the benchmark, go do these rebalancing functional restorative routines and go run that same route, the same length at the same pace. What changes with the, the ground contact time? It's a really interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I think I found that when I run slower, I tend to focus less on form, less on driving the legs, less on trying to, to lift up the feet and keep moving because when I'm doing a faster run or a speed workout or whatever it is, I'm driving. Like I'm, I'm intentionally driving, but if I'm just doing a, a which low and slow, which many of us try to do as ultra runners, I'm not focused as much on form. I'm just plodding along. And that's when I think the compensations and all the actual true issues I have show up. Mm -hmm. And if we, in the fashion of looking at the entire body, there are obviously major differences in your legs when you're running at a trot speed versus mm -hmm. uh, a higher, higher cadence is arm function. What are your arms doing differently at a high speed that can help minimize your imbalance that they're not doing? Are you swinging your arms more, which helps you counterbalance your leg imbalance? 
is it not really about the speed or is it more just your higher use of arms? And if that's the case, which for many people it is, given how the shoulders affect leg function, let's try having a bigger swing when you're running slower. And maybe that might actually offset this disparity between your right and left leg, uh, larger arm swing. This could be an hour long conversation if you want it to be. <laughs> As you can see, Jeremy, I'm going to have an hour long on this because I love the part of it. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and, I mean, I'm the same way, right? And I think though, this is getting some really good stuff because obviously part of this is talking to help people understand the concept. Mm -hmm. But then the other part is, okay, tactically, what can we all do? And so I'm going to go into kind of a line of questioning about that, but I'm in the same boat. So obviously I said, I've been having some lower back. I recognize I've got tightness in my hips. So I've been trying to do some of the standard mobility, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to try to open up my hips and do this stuff. Well, I did an out, out and back run the other day on a dirt road. And as I'm running back, I'm looking at my previous, you know, footprints and I'm recognizing that, Hey, while my, in the past, they've been pretty symmetric. I noticed that my right foot is angled out. And I ran with somebody a while back and said, we were on the trails and he said, Hey, it looks like you're kicking your right foot out. I didn't think too much about it, <laughs> but so now I'm like, okay, clearly, even though I don't feel it, there's something happening, which is, uh, you know, my body's not balanced. So I guess a couple of questions, what is something that people can do to help diagnose, I guess, if they have issues, because they may go out and run and feel great. And like you said, maybe they recover a little bit slower, or whatever, there's no injury yet. But how do you take a look and go, am I imbalanced? And I'm, you know, am I not? That actually is the spot on question we should begin with is how do you assess yourself? Yeah. So the most complete answer is I've put together a program to help people do this. It's called the pain assessment toolkit. And I literally through six specific movements and functions, I teach people how to assess themselves. Now there's two things you need to know to assess yourself. There is subjective assessment. What do you feel? You just did a subjective assessment when you ran. Subjective assessments can be really great because they really put your critical thinking. What are you aware of? What can you feel? But the problem is, is they don't capture what you don't feel. Right. You can only feel what you can feel, right? You only have so much access to so much information at one time with your sensory system. So there's the going off of feeling, which can be helpful. But there's the more accurate objective way, which is through photos. I need to get you to step outside of what you're feeling, these tight hips, these stiff cat, you know, the right foot. I need you to take a step out of that. Let's take some photos of what your body's doing and look at where is this structure deviating? What's, how, what's happening on the right side that looks different than the left side? When you bend forward, what are the areas in your body that move well? And what are the areas that are not moving at all that it's giving you this sensation of tension? Let's not chase the tension. Let's not chase the injury. Let's take a massive step back and look at what your entire body is doing, doing these really basic, simple motions like standing in place. Are we standing actually on both feet the same? Is your right side in the same position as your left side? Are the shoulders level? Is the pelvis level? Are both knees pointed forwards in the same direction? Or is one kind of twisting out? Can we even feel that, right? These are the questions that need to be asked. I have over 4,000 progress photos of success stories. And I say that not as a braggadocious way of saying our stuff works here, but 
every single one of these people had something in common, which is in their before photo, they thought they were standing straight. In their bend forward photo, they thought their hips moved. In all these photos, there was only the problems that they were aware of. And there's this whole level of sensory information when we have injuries or we're just not even knowing how to be aware of it that we have access to, but we don't tap into on a daily basis. There is a whole level of sensory information that is flying underneath all of our radars. And the only way your body's ability to get your attention is through pain. It's through stiffness. It's through tension. It's through some kind of sensation and signal that this isn't, this isn't moving well. Something's not going right here. Well, we can't just listen to that sensation as the problem. Hey, you've got tight hamstrings. That sensation's the problem. Your hamstrings didn't just wake up one day and decide to be tight. They're doing that to immobilize and protect motion from happening elsewhere. That's why just stretching them doesn't really get much results because the nervous system goes right back to the default protected muscle guarding. It's only when you take a step back and see the bigger picture that you get to start asking some different questions here that lead to ultimately the answers of what I teach people. Here's one thing I love about you, man. And I think it's the same reason that when you had your light bulb moment, it meant so much to you because I have, you know, like this morning I did one of your videos and I did some of the movements and the way that he taught you and you said, man, I could, I could do this. It's clear that, and obviously I haven't done your, your program and I haven't done the, you know, the photos, mm -hmm. but even in the videos and the content that you have out there, it wasn't do this stretch. And this is why mm -hmm. it was do this stretch and pay attention to what's happening elsewhere. Are you clenching your jaw? Because if you're clenching your jaw, mm -hmm. here's what I want you to consider. Are your feet pointing out or are they straight? Here's what I want you to consider as you're stretching something not related to your feet. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for everybody listening, I just highly recommend it, you know, and we're going to put all the stuff in the notes, but check out the content. And obviously some people, the full program may be the deal. And for some people, it may just be, you know, they want to plug into some of the videos and get that content. But, uh, I want to make it very clear that especially as somebody who racked up a bunch of credit card debt, going to people who said, do this and come back next time and we'll do it again. You're teaching people to fish. And I told my wife, because my wife's got TMJ issues. And that's actually mm -hmm. one of the triggers I realized when you said, Hey, if you people with TMJ, you may notice this happening. And I was like, stretching my hips. Right. And I was like, wow, that's something that, um, I think is so applicable. So I just want people to really understand the importance of what you're doing. And I'm, I'm super impressed by that piece. And, and on that kind of a follow-on, is there anything that you think most of our listeners are not doing that they should be, whether it's a single type movement or exercise, or you say, Hey, here's a, go check out this video of mine, because this is kind of some of your foundational stuff. Outside the program, right? I, I really, I've, I've poured my blood, sweat, heart, and soul into this program to literally give people the answers of what they need. But I understand that that could all obviously be a big ask, especially if somebody doesn't know what this stuff is yet. I've got some great content on YouTube that you should go try. I've got a specific routine that I built for runners or people who just want to improve the way that they're walking. Be a skeptic, go try it, go listen to the cues. The exercises aren't revolutionary. They are not 
advanced and hard to do. It's not the exercises. It's how the exercises are helping you navigate your nervous system. That's what's going to create these big aha moments and changes. So anybody listening to this, I'd say, just go feel it. Don't try to understand it yet. Just literally go watch it, get into your body. Let me guide you on how to do that. And let me show you not two exercises to fix your back pain, but let me show you what current level of function your body has. And let's see if we can maybe make it a little bit better. And hopefully I can plant some seeds of, huh, I never, I never thought that my glutes should also tilt my pelvis. I've only been always using my abs. Let me show you the other ways to move. I think that's the best for a start if you're not going to do the program to start. So uh, it was interesting, and, and to echo your point, so I've done PT for plantar fasciitis also, and one of the, the typical exercises is doing calf raises in a variety of different forms and stuff. And in the video that I'm assuming we both did today was a, a routine or a series of calf raises and stuff. And one of the things I thought that was absolutely fascinating that I never actually have ever focused on in a calf raise is stacking my rib cage and pelvis and hips and everything in a vertical column and literally noticed the difference in doing the calf raise when I, when I focused on stacking them versus just doing a normal calf raise, which for plantar fasciitis, like I said, we do these calf raises to prepare, but I realized when I'm doing them like I'm, I've always just done them, my hips will come forward um, and I'm raising up like I think that's what you're supposed to do, but I've never stacked. And it didn't make it harder or easier, but it, it was a completely different sensation in my calves themselves and that mm -hmm. those were actually doing the work as opposed to just the compensation of the rest of the body. So I definitely think people should check out the videos like you're talking about that you do have available if they're, if they're skeptical. I have no idea what your program's like because obviously I don't see behind the curtain, but I do believe that the stuff you've put out there that people can at least check out for themselves is fantastic. I love what you said, and, and I want to touch a note on that. You know, uh, Jeremy, you asked, you know, what, what, what can people do? What's, what's the one thing people can do? I'm assuming we've got a lot of athletic movers on this podcast podcast listening to this. That tells me you're really good at using momentum to accomplish a job or an activity. I want to show you how to use your body without momentum, like Jeff just figured out. Well, what happens if you don't throw the pelvis and rib cage forward every time you do a calf raise and you actually reduce momentum to get more action in the joint that we are trying to strengthen and improve? It's kind of like a magic show. Taking away motion here puts motion back into other places in more profound ways. The biggest thing runners can do right now is understand that there is a spectrum of movement. There's momentum and high intensity on one end, and then there's rest on the other end. I'm not talking about sleeping to recover. I'm talking about taking momentum away from your body and focusing on joint action without you throwing things into the mix and doing all the same movements that you've been doing. You're just doing it with a rehab exercise. I'm literally going to take movement away from you and show you how to move more precisely where you want it. And that's what people can, can start learning is how to actually learn the opposite end of movement. It's movement without momentum. One of the things you just said, and we talked a lot about it, the way you just used the, the term recovery. And I think, again, so from a foundational point and it being a light bulb moment of, hey, there's really something to the way that we use our bodies or the way that we do not use our bodies, right? And so, again, I just want to hammer that the stuff we're talking about, I think from a, if you want to be the best runner you can be, training is great, but we've said before, 
you know, a lot of times it's not about how hard you train. It's about how quickly you recover, right? If you can master the recovery game. Now that said, a lot of us will go recovery means day off, right? It means, Hey, I don't go run today. But one of the examples we use, and, and you know, I mean, obviously breaking your back, but, um, but I thought about, Hey, if, you know, a car accident, whatever it is, when you're in the hospital and you've gotten something taken away from you, they don't go, all right, it's time to recover. Just lay in your bed until everything's better. Recovery means something. It's intentionality. It's, Hey, we're going to try to now use our bodies in ways that make us better and stronger. Mm -hmm. And so the things that you're talking about, I think that's just an eye opener, right? To go, Hey, it's a day off, but I could be doing Vinny's program mm -hmm. to make sure that the next time I go out and run, I am doing it in a way where I'm using the right, you know, parts of my body. So tell me your thoughts specifically from a running perspective what do recovery days look like for you? What do you think that kind of the rest of us should be doing? Yeah, great, great question. So recovery days for me are all about movement. I will massively prolong the time it takes to recover if I just don't do anything. Movement is medicine. It gets blood, oxygen, and vital nutrients into the cells to help recover and repair the damage. So the more movement you do on a recovery day, we're not talking aerobic threshold movement. We're talking functional movement, the faster and shorter your recovery period is going to be. I exclusively stick to the routines. One of them I've put up on YouTube for free, this, this running walking routine that mainly targets the muscles that become very neurally overdriven with runners. What are the same muscle groups that we're talking about? It's the ones that just barely flex and extend the hips, knee, and the foot calves, front shins, quads, hamstrings, glutes, and hip flexors. So I primarily stretch those muscle groups before I run because I want to inhibit my performance in those muscle groups. So uh, I think we've all been told, you know, stretching and doing kind of functional work should not be done before aerobic repetitive use or weightlifting activities because it decreases performance. Many people need a decrease in performance if they are going to do things long-term because how they're performing is building dysfunction into the musculoskeletal system. So I will do routines that remind the muscles of what their proper length is before running, which mm. kind of triggers this stretch weakness response. So I'm not out there running my normal Vinny body. I'm running with better function, better performance, greater range of motion. Sure, I'm not as strong, but I'm also not as compensatory. So I will do my movement routines before a run. So the body I'm bringing into that run has as great of a chance as possible to jump from my right leg to left leg, the same for hours. And then when I'm done with my run, I'll come back and do a shorter version of the same routine I did pre-run to remind the left side that you are going to move, work, and function just like the right side. And I'm not going to allow this, this, whatever the training period did. If it's a lot of hill work, it's probably a lot of bent forward shoulders thrown in front of the hips. I'm not going to allow these adaptative cardio sessions control my movement outside of running. So it's, it's, it's work, it's work before and work after. And I think it's probably been one of the most significant reasons why I'm now training for ultras and have yet to receive a running injury yet. Not, I'm knocking on wood, right, wherever, right. wherever wood is right now. 
Everybody listening is like, we'll see, Benny. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope this isn't one of those that didn't age well um, <laughs> clips. I think it's huge, man. And, and I do, I know we're getting a little bit short of time. I do want to talk about kind of you and the race you have coming up. But uh, before we move away from the topic, again, I'm just going to encourage everybody, go check out your content. You've got a ton of great stuff out there. You can go to uh, painacademy.net, correct? Um, mm-hmm. And you're on Instagram and I'll put all this in the notes at Pain Academy. And tell me if I'm wrong, but this is another thing that when we talk about you're teaching people, you know, to fish versus selling them a fish, right? Is you have people take pictures, but they don't have to submit those pictures. You tell them what to look for. Is that correct? Or do all the pictures get submitted? It is vital to me that people develop the skill set to serve themselves long-term. Everybody's healing, the testimonials, the progress, the success stories is not Vinny contingent or my team's contingent on us analyzing them or telling them what to do. The program teaches all of that. It teaches you how to identify what your body's doing, how to understand what these compensations are, why they're giving you the experience you're having with movement. And then as you enter into the movement program, it teaches you how to use these assessments as benchmarks to become your own scientist with your body. Do the assessments before one of my routines. Go do the routine. And when you're done, go back to the assessment. This is what you should feel. This is what you should see. This is what you should notice. It's this constant checking in with your senses, looking at objective changes, doing movements to restore neuromuscular communication. It is this vital process that puts you in the driver's seat of your own process. I don't want anybody to have their healing be contingent on somebody else. This should be you learning how to get into your own driver's seat and drive this car for the rest of your life. It's a gift and a skill set that pays long-term, but you got to put some work into it at the start. I think it's a huge point. It was a, it was something that impressed me. And not only that, but there may be people out there like, I don't want to submit pictures, right? But yeah, they, they don't have to. You're teaching them what to look for. And not only that, but that gives them the control. So I wanted to put that in there because we talked about the pictures earlier. And I thought, and maybe people thinking, I don't want to do that. But we don't need to see more pictures than you. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, I'll give and, you all my pictures, Vinny. We know you I'll, will. I'll just well, yeah, we should. Them. We should do that on the next uh, podcast. We'll, we'll break them down. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's also this gap of, of people hearing, well, me take my photos. I'm not a professional. I don't know what I'm looking for. We can't offshore this work to other people for the rest of our lives. I mean, you can, it's going to be expensive and your chances of success aren't going to be probably what you want them to be. It's only when you learn that you're the best person to resolve these problems because you're inside your body, you're hardwired to your nervous system 24 seven, the moment you can understand what to do and what to look for is the moment your self-care game completely changes. And that's the skill set I'm, I'm offering to teach people. Yeah, so you're responsible for your, for the movement of your own body. So hell yeah. And, and I, you know, in my young age, I thought just like swiping the credit card was like, good. Like I did what I was supposed mm-hmm. to. And my, you know, the lesson that breaking my back taught me is nobody's going to do this for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought just checking the box, paying the people what they asked for, um, showing up for my appointment, kind of half-assedly doing the exercises, as long as I was checking the boxes, that was enough. But I never really took full ownership that this is my problem to fix and nothing really changed until I did. So, so that self-responsibility is huge. 
I mean, it's just mind boggling because you know that most of us as ultra runners, we are committed to, to our craft. Like we're committed yep. to running and putting ourselves out there to do that. But this, this being in tune and thinking how we move outside of running is so scarce with so many of us. Like we just don't all do it. And I think it's just huge to, to it, take that. It's kind of the, again, how did I not know I could hold my breath? You going, mm-hmm. how, how has nobody told me about this? Mm-hmm. For the sake of time, I really think it's one of those type of important items that when the light bulb goes off, it's like, holy crap, like here is a magic unlock and it's not magic, but. So for those listening, like we've spent a lot of time talking about his pain stuff, but now we get to talk about the type of pain we all love. (laughs) And Vinny is going to experience his first ultra. um, The chosen pain, the the chosen chosen, The chosen pain, the, the suffering that we long for. And so those who are listening are like, well, let's see how Mr. Pain Man deals with this. You do have the Cascadia, Cascadia 50 miler coming up in October. It was June 18th originally on the calendar. It got postponed for some reason I'm not sure of. How are you feeling about it? It's been a mix mix of emotions. So the moment I found got the email that the race was canceled, it was this like relief that washed over me. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Pitiful. Because there, there was this also, uh, you know, I've run one marathon and I've run one half marathon and this is a 50 mile race with 14,000 feet of altitude gain. Uh, what am I doing? Like I should incrementally build into the sport. Right. So it was just this, this massive task. And I felt the weight of that task kind of get lifted off when I got that cancel, but I'm also ready for it. You know, I'd prepared myself for it for six months. So, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of then hysterically laughing because I now have a skill set that is not usable in any situation unless, you know, there was like an apocalypse and I needed to run 50 miles over to the nearest town to deliver a message really fast. That's it. This is not a, a daily usable skill set here running 10, 20 something hours, <laughs> but it's October 15th. So somebody was looking out for me and bought me a couple more months of training. And I originally thought about doing a, you know, another kind of ultra or, you know, just maybe even a 50 K not go for a 50 miler. I think I'm just going to kind of get a little bit more familiar with what marathons are and figure out that nutrition before October 15th comes around. It was bittersweet. A lot of emotions. I'm excited to see how it goes, man. Yeah. And again, kind of short on time. I heard the story about the marathon. I know you lots of lessons learned. He's a train wreck, man. He's an absolute <laughs> <Yeah>. train wreck. <laughs> just I'm just laughing at people running by, you know, stopping at aid stations like rookies. Mistakes were made. Mistake, <laughs> mistakes were made. You should try that uh, strategy at the um, old Cascadia. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to go well. Uh, but I gotta, I gotta back it up. You know, I've been talking about this ultra. I can't be like crying at mile five here. So it's time to put my, my adult pants on and do this thing. <laughs> well, the good thing is you've obviously had plenty of experience at pushing through hard things and continuing to move forward when things feel hopeless. And that's probably like the number one thing in the ultra game, right? Because yeah. it's going to, at some point, probably feel hopeless but I think that's a good question for him. Like, what do you think for yourself when, because all right, as people who've run ultras and stuff ourselves as well, and you ran the marathon, which you know, you've admitted was difficult. Um, the Cascadia is like twice that distance and it's a lot more vert, which is going to be substantial uh, for, for something of that length. Um, I'm not laughing at you out loud, but I kind of am. Um, <laughs> laughing with me, right? <laughs> I, I guess we could call it that. 
Um, (laughs) What do you think you're going to use mentally to push yourself to not quit? I, I have to get into that same place where that nerve pain was inescapable. Mm-hmm. And when something is barking at you like that in every movement and every breath, you have to not get involved with it. You can't resist it. You can't go negative. You can't fight it. You can't tense up. You, you have to surrender to it and you got to make peace with it. You got to acknowledge that that voice is there. It's going to bark, but you got to put some space between you and that voice. Mm -hmm. That's the skill set that I got from breaking my back and dealing with that, that kind of pain that just penetrates thoughts. I think that I I literally looked at the course profile and I'm like, I'm going to meet a demon there. I'm going to meet a demon (laughs) at that peak. And on the way up on that last peak, I've mapped it out and it's going to be that same it's going to be that voice of telling you to give in, telling you to quit. And that dialogue and how I interact, if I even interact with that voice, that's going to be the thing that's going to either give me a DNF or I'm going to be crawling across the finish line. So when, it, you, when you crawl across that finish line, what's it going to mean to you? First of all, I want to know what a beer tastes like after a 50-mile race. <laughs> I want to know how good that tastes. Um, Crossing that finish line for me is the final piece I need to make with that voice that's been telling me to quit and give in for the longest time and just give up. It's that, it's that just full recognition of putting yourself now voluntarily in that environment and, and being willfully put into that pain cave to face that. That's crossing that finish line. It, I know I'm going to have to confront that demon. It's going to be there. I don't know if it's going to be there at mile five. It's for sure going to be in the last 10 miles. I'll tell you that. And I haven't even ran the damn thing. And I know that that's going to happen. Uh, you know, so I think the relief of the race getting canceled was buying me a little bit more time until I had to have that really uncomfortable conversation with myself when things start to break down. I hope he carries but, his phone with him so we can text him during it. <laughs> Yeah, you guys are just going to see me crying on the live stream the whole time. That's perfect. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, but it's going to mean everything, you know, and I've I've got a special needs son. He's got a lot of physical uh, handicaps and um, he knows what I've been through. He's he's seeing, I'm showing him, he's nine years old. He's, He's seeing his dad make this radical transformation in being and existing. And I'm showing him how it's done. And I want to show him what it's going to take and kind of the, the man, the person you need to become to do something like this, because it's just, it's my experience with it so far. And I'm still talking on the outside because I've yet to complete that first ultra. Um, it's just the process of getting to know yourself. I think at a, a level that no therapy session will do, no psychedelic retreat will do. It is, it is. You're going to meet yourself on that, on that race. I'm excited. I'm excited to follow along. We'll, we'll get, we'll get the next podcast on October 16th, the day after. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk, we'll see how chipper I am about that. I'm going to ask you about that compensation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm going to tap into that superpower somewhere around mile 30. I think That's I'm not awesome. going to be wearing pain Academy shirt. Cause I can't be limping across the stand finish line, you know? <laughs> You 100% have to. Yeah, I was going to say. That's right. Yeah. 
Well, look, dude, we have so enjoyed talking with you. And for everybody listening, go follow Vinny. It's at Pain Academy on Instagram, painacademy.net. Are there other places that people should connect with you? That's the best. Okay. Um, yeah, website and Insta. Go and, and go send some love. Follow for, you know, the October race. Dude, you're uh, a friend for life and anything that, you know, we or the community can do for you or continue to do for you. We'd love for you to, you know, reach out and connect. But thank you so much, man, for taking the time. Yeah, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks, guys. And for everybody listening, we appreciate you as well. And actually, we are going to uh, keep Vinny around for a few minutes to do our game a fun little game so uh if you are not a patron and you want to check out kind of the after after the show scenes go find us on patreon the ultra running guys and we'll get you set up but until then we'll talk soon and cut we hope this is your best ever podcast experience yep. we're gonna have a good time. already so we're gonna, already so <laughs> it's a little early for that we can oh, call well, it a day, guys. This is great. Well, now I can't trust him. You know, no, that's true. <laughs> if we go cool. past 930, it's going to be your fault completely. <laughs> Yo, I like talking, so get ready <laughs> well, for it. Remind me of names one more time real quick. Jeremy. Jeff. Okay, so it's not John and Steve. Got it. <laughs> Close. <laughs> that's the part that we're going to edit out, baby. Oh, we've had some really cool people that um, we've been able just to kind of get to know and learn their stories and stuff. And so uh, we think you will do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, I can uh, carry forward the cool, the cool vibe of guests that you guys have. Uh, Andy Glaze. Do you follow oh, yeah. Andy Glaze at all? Who's that? I do. He's out in Redlands, I think. Yeah. The guy's. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. He's a. He's, a, he's an animal, man. Yeah. 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 That was. Uh. It was first. It was first Ragnar, and you know we went with a team of eight, and uh, probably about twenty-four to forty-eight hours before three of the guys all of a sudden had work issues pop up <laughs> and they were also the guys that didn't train at all they didn't the train too. yeah 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 so it was you know very convenient that's awesome right. that's what this is about i love yep. it if you say something in the course of the conversation that you can't believe you said about somebody that you shouldn't have said you're like, oh my <laughs> god shouldn't have talked about you know my friend this way or whatever those three guys that you really would have don't right. in the podcast i want them to hear this like, hey, i'll right. put that right in the beginning that'll, that'll just be the intro right. like, yeah, that, that's our one minute sound bite that we use to, to it's possible. this